Almighty God, you sustain, you alone preserve, you order and care for your people. And this morning we come very aware of just how weak and weary we are. We come, many of us, fearful of what the future may hold. Many are here this morning feeling the sting and the heaviness of present hard circumstances. We don't come this morning pretending and that we have our life together. We come this morning, Father, convinced that we live in a broken world, and it's not only broken because of the things around us, but our own hearts. Our own hearts add to the brokenness. This world has proved itself to be not safe again this week for us. You, though, you are our sovereign, good, and wise God, and this is why we come to you in prayer. Thanking you for your promises that are in your word, that guide us and lead us in our lives that is so chaotic and unstable. Meet us, I pray this morning, during our time that we've gathered here together with your word open in our laps. May we abide in your steady, everlasting truth that is in your word. May your promises build us up this morning. And may our hearts cling to the name of Jesus, our great and good and sufficient Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, many of us think of or could think of probably thousands of places around the world that it is difficult for someone to be a Christian. We may think of uh, places that are maybe on the other side of a planet from where we are. Maybe places as close as, as Haiti, as we talked about or prayed for this morning, or Cuba. That's very, very difficult for followers to pursue Christ. But though there may, be, there may be thousands of places around the world where it is difficult for one to be a Christian, there are thousands of, thousands of places in this building and the lives that you represent that it is difficult to be a Christian. There are singles here this morning that have decided to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, you can't just go and find anybody. You've got to find one who is a follower of Christ. One who isn't just apathetic or nominal as a Christian. One who tips their hat as a believer. But one who is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that way, being a single person looking for a spouse means that following Christ is harder, more difficult. There are, on the other end of the spectrum, there are older adults here this morning that are caring for their ailing and difficult or ailing and, 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 uh, and struggling parents that are finding it difficult to trust in Christ. They may have, their parents may have gone to church all their life, but here at the end of their lives, they're doubting. They're doubting the Lord's goodness. They, even, they may even be very difficult to, to, to manage and to care for. And yet, we, there's those here that are here this morning that are trying to care for those parents and love them well and care for them. And you're not just simply trying to get them to the end of their life. You're trying to encourage them in the Lord. Point them to Christ. Help them to see hope. You're not, you're not just trying to feed them through the day and make sure they're comfortable. You're trying to help them see the hope they have in Jesus. And in that way, it's harder. It's more difficult. There are those who are here this morning that are spouses. And the one that you live with um, is very, very difficult. And the Lord, you know, the Lord's called you to be faithful. And faithfulness is hard. 
when your spouse isn't trying to be faithful. There are parents here this morning that are trying to raise those little ones that you hear squirming and trying to get still this morning, maybe not trying to get still this morning. And those moms and dads, their heart isn't just that those kids will sit still this morning, but that God, by the power of His Spirit and by the preaching of His Word, will grasp their hearts and they will come to see the need for their Savior. You see, brothers and sisters, there are thousands of ways that I can communicate and we will be looking at as we look at the book of 1 Peter over the next several weeks that we're going to see that as, as those who are trying to follow Christ, there's a unique challenge that we face. We're trying to want something, desire something, look for something that's beyond just what this world wants. And in that way, it's difficult. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter and the challenges and trials that God's people during Peter's day were going through. And Peter gives them hope. He gives them hope. And so before we jump in, um, let's do an overview because this is the first Sunday we're looking at 1 Peter together. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, look there at 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want to fly over, if you will, a thousand feet so that we can get a good understanding of what the entire lay of the land of 1 Peter is going to be. This is not the outline for the sermon. That will come in just a minute. But I think it's beneficial for us to get a, get a grasp of kind of where we're going and what we're looking at. The, the overarching theme for the book of 1 Peter is this, a sure hope for unsure days. Overarching theme for the book of 1 Peter is a sure hope for unsure days. And as you look at this book, I want you to see it in three different parts. That probably doesn't surprise you. But we see it here. I want you to notice it. This isn't my outline. This is, Lord willing, the book's outline as, as I look through it. Three different parts. First is knowing our hope. Knowing our hope. This is chapter 1, starting with verse 1, going all the way through to chapter 2, verse 10. The chapter numbers don't serve us well here. But chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, is the first section, the first part I want us to notice, and that is knowing our hope. That's, that's the main heading for that first section. Point number 2, the second section of this book. Notice in verse 11, chapter 2. Look with me, if you will. Verse 11 of chapter 2, it begins, Beloved, this book is incredibly pastoral. Peter, is, as, as, a, as a shepherd, he's, he's wanting to minister to the souls of these churches and these, this congregation. And he refers to them as his beloved, those, those who he loves and he treasures. He wants to see them be commended in Christ. So here in verse 11, chapter 2, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So point number two. Point number one was knowing our hope. Point number two is a heading for or a section of this letter, First Peter, is walking together. Point two, walk, uh, knowing our hope. Uh, point, number two, point number one, knowing our hope. Point number two, walking together. Walking together. And this starts at chapter 2, verse 11. And it goes, this is easy enough, all the way over to chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. So knowing our hope, chapter 1 through 2, verse 10. And then the second point is chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11. And this is walking together. Now go all the way down to chapter 4, verse 11, if you will, and look with me. The last word in verse 11. Amen. You see that? Great place to end, isn't it? Great place to stop. And so that, that, that's the stopping point for the second point of the second heading for the book of 1 Peter. And then notice the next word in verse 12 there in, in chapter 4. 
beloved. So he comes back to address the congregation again. And this is the third section and the final section of the book of 1 Peter. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised. This is chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so here this third point is standing firm. Standing firm. Chapter 4, verse 12 through the end of the book is going to be the heading over that is standing firm. So knowing our hope, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Walking together, chapter 2, 11 through 4, 11. That's the middle section. And then the end, point number 3, is standing firm. And this is chapter 4, 12 through 5 to the end. Now notice with me there at chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. And there's our word again. Amen. He closes that section out and then has some closing remarks at the end. Now, isn't it easy? You know, I hope you're staying there in chapter 5, verse 11. Because it's always, it's always good. I don't know how many, how many books you've read where right at the beginning of the book, the author tells you, this is what I'm trying to do in this book. Well, here in 1 Peter, we have the author, Peter, telling us what he's trying to do in the book, but he does it at the end. Notice with me there at verse 12. Right there in the middle of verse 12 of chapter 5, he tells us what he's attempting to set before us and how we're to respond to that as his people and as the people of God during, during the saints during, first, during Peter's day. It says there in the middle of verse 12 of chapter 5, I have written briefly to you, here we are, I have written, written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's what he's warning from us. That's the challenge for us over the next several weeks as we go through 1 Peter. God's going to, by His grace, His Spirit, and by the power of His Word, He's going to help us in our daily lives stand firm. Do we need that? Does this congregation need that this week to figure out how to stand firm? Absolutely. Absolutely. With the prayer requests we've mentioned, but, but so many of you that we haven't prayed for during the time of of the pastoral prayer. So many of you I know are walking through times when you are wondering whether you're going to be able to stand firm or not. First Peter is going to help us to stand firm because this letter exhorts Christians to stand firm even when it's difficult, when the trials are difficult. But hear this, but especially when our faith is weak. This isn't a book for those who have stalwart faith that never shake or tremble. No, this book is for those who have faith that is, that is trembling many times, that is struggling. It will help us endure because we're going to learn how to firmly fix our faith in Christ and firmly fix our hope in a heaven to come. And that's what this book's going to do for us. And I, and I pray that that is what you will be praying for us as a congregation and for one another as the Lord works us through this book together. So now let's look at the first couple of verses. Now that we have a bigger picture, let's hone in on verses 1 and 2. And this is where, where we'll be for, this, for the rest of this day. So we're going to be looking here at verses 1 and 2, the first couple of verses. And here are the three points that we see uh, laid out before us as we look at these verses. Really an introduction to the book. First, we're going to notice the author. This is point number one, the author. The Peter the Apostle. You see that there in verse 1? Point number 2. We're going to notice the readers. Those who would have been the first ones who have read and heard this letter. The readers of this letter. 
And these are the elect exiles. We'll see that there in verse 1 as well, at the, at the middle of verse 1. The author, point 1, Peter the Apostle. The readers, point number 2, the elect exiles. And then finally, point number 3, the prayer. And we see that at the end of verse 2. In the verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you see that? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. That's the path we're going to be working through. Let's notice the author of this letter first. It is important here for us to know that Peter, Peter neither overlooks the authority that he has as an apostle, nor does he spend a lot of time explaining it, kind of like Paul does. If you notice, when Paul declares his apostleship, he usually takes some time to lay that out and explain that. Why? Because he's an apostle in a unique way. But Peter doesn't have to do that. He's, he's Peter. He's, he, he's the apostle of the apostles, right? He's, he, he's this one who is preeminent among the apostles in many ways. He doesn't defend his apostleship. He simply, simply declares it. So we notice here in our very, very beginning of this book how necessary but short his self-identification is. He says very clearly, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, there in verse 1. But why is it then, why is it important that Peter's writing this message to us? Well, what do you think about when you think about Peter? Many of us, when we think of Peter, we think of bold faithfulness. I mean, this is the one who was always leading out, wasn't he? He was the one in front of all the other disciples when he was around Jesus. He's the one that um, often spoke up before all the others did. He was the one that pulled, drew the sword when there was an army around him. And he says, I'm going to defend Jesus if nobody else does. This is the kind of, Jesus, this is the kind of Peter that, we, that we're aware of, that we know that we've read of in our, in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 16 is really the pinnacle of this. Do you remember how Jesus goes to the disciples and he's asking all of them, all of them, he says, he says who, who do people say that I am? And he begins asking the question, who's the one that speaks up? Well, it's Peter. Jesus says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And he's, and he's asking the disciples particularly, who, who is it that you guys, who is it that you're saying that I am? Not just what everybody generally says, but what do you as disciples say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter says in Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was a pinnacle, right? Now, what does Jesus do at this point? He basically says, Peter, you're, you're going to be, that confession that you just declared is going to be the, the, the very stone by which the church is going to be built on. And that's why he was called, his, his nickname was Rock, Peter. And Jesus answered to Peter after he declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see how Peter then is elevated? He's, he's, really, he, he's the apostle of the apostles. There, there's no doubt Peter loved Jesus as well. You know how many times that he saw Jesus? Do you remember Matthew, or excuse me, John 21, where he sees Jesus after the resurrection on the beach? It says in that, in that gospel, gospel uh, John 21, that as soon as he sees Jesus, he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he just jumps right in the water and goes after him. Well, that wasn't the first time. Earlier in Matthew chapter 14, it says on the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Jesus did, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter says to him, Listen, 
Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus, I want to be with you. I want want to come to you. Peter got out of the boat, it says, and walked on water and came to Jesus. What an amazing faith. But I want us to take a moment to remember something. I don't think Peter wrote this letter because of his incredible boldness and love for the Lord. Peter's also known for his failures, isn't he? The very next verse of Matthew 14, it says, Now Peter's standing on the water in front of Jesus. It says, And when he saw the wind, Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, as the Lord has so often said to me and to so many of us, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? The mighty man of faith, Peter, the distinguished one of all the disciples, the apostle of Jesus Christ himself, knew what it meant to sink. And he knew how weak and frail and just how quickly his faith could evaporate. He was trembling. He was quivering. Peter knew that the power of walking with faith by faith was amazing. But Peter also was one who knew how quickly it could disappear and how fast he could just fall off the cliff or sink into the water. We remember, don't we, just a few months ago when we were in the Gospel of Mark, Peter was below in the courtyard, Mark chapter 14. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders began to say to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You and I have been there. And this is the Peter that's writing this letter. A Peter who knows what it means to fail and to fall and to stumble and to can't get it together. This is the Peter who wrote this letter and he's writing it to saints who he knows that are no more strong than he is. And he's writing it to us this morning and for the next several weeks because we're just as frail in our faith. Peter has amazing faith, but also amazing failure. And so as we work through this letter, the letter to Peter, or the letter from Peter, we're going to notice together what it means to follow our Savior. This one who has failed a number of times is the one who's going to teach us how to stand firm. Because he's done it. He's, He's taken the hits and he's learned what it means to continue to follow Christ even in his failures. And he's going to show us this as well this morning. Point number one, that was the author. The author, Peter the Apostle. Point number two, I want us to notice the readers. The readers. In other words, who is it that received this letter? 
And we see here that this portion of what we're going to be looking at this morning is the largest portion of our text. It's, it, starts, it starts in verse 1 there, and it goes all the way through to almost the end of verse 2. It's describing here those who received this letter. It's quite dense, thick in theological content. It's, it's not just saying, hey, it's me, let's move on. No, he's giving some very important information for us to have so that we can understand this letter better and so that we can better receive it ourselves as we work through this letter. So notice, if you will, four descriptions, four ways that he's describing these readers, those who receive this letter. The four, the four ways that he describes them, he describes their place, he describes their cause, he describes their source, and he describes the result, their result. Their place, their cause, their source, and their result. I want you to see those here in our text. First, notice he's describing their place. He describes where they're coming from. Notice it says in verse 1, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter calls them elect exiles. Do you see that there? And the rest of the verse seems to be explaining this understanding of what it means to be an exile. Don't get hung up. I wouldn't get hung up on, on the cities or the places here. Um, they're likely not cities during the time that Peter wrote this letter, even though they, many of them became cities later on. They're more like regions, areas um, that don't have very specific boundaries. And the reason they're ordered in this way, most think it's basically because this is how the letter was going to be delivered. This is the route that it was going to go on, first to Pontus and then to Galatia and then to Cappadocia. So, so the ordering really is, is not all that important either. The, the point here is that they were exiles, meaning they were scattered all over the place. Here's the point. They were not settled. They did not have a home. And the reason they didn't have a home, the reason they were scattered, is because they were following Christ. They were believers of the Lord. They did not feel comfortable where they were because they were constantly moving around. And they weren't settled. Some translations say instead of exiles, they use the phrase strangers scattered. Another translation uses the word aliens. And God's people in that day were to understand themselves. And Peter wanted them to understand themselves. Not as those who should feel comfortable in their surroundings and in this world. In other words, Peter wanted God's people during that day and want us to know today that this is not our home. And we should never, we should never root our hearts, our ambitions, our desires into this place. Because everything here is passing away. This world that we live in should never be too comfortable to us. It should never find a dear place in our hearts. We're to always be praying for and longing for the Lord to return and for His kingdom to be established. Isn't that exactly what He tells us to pray in the prayer? In His very prayer, He tells the disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that we would have a faith like Moses. Remember Moses? Moses had it made. He was, he was the Pharaoh's daughter's son, raised in, in, in the preeminent uh, uh, place in the world with everything coming to him. He had anything the world could offer. And the faith that Moses had caused him to turn away from it and see that none of this was what he was supposed to be rooting his heart in. Now, we struggle in this way. 
But this is the faith that we are called to as those who are Christians. Those who don't feel comfortable and okay with the things that the world finds fun and enjoyable, but instead turning to the things that the Lord calls our delight. Hebrews 11 speaks of Moses' faith in this way. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated. Now what in the world is he thinking? Couldn't he have kind of played it in the middle? Couldn't he have done what so many times we try to do? Let me have the world and all the things that are there and be a Christian and live like that. And I can live, I can live with one foot in both sides and just kind of enjoy them both. No, he chose not to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? It says in Hebrews 11.26, For he was looking to the reward. And what was this reward? What is it that Moses is looking to so that he can, he can look away from all the treasures that were around him, all the promises that he was given as one who was living in the very palace in Egypt? Pristine, wonderful, everything the world can offer to him was being brought to his lap. And he says, I need none of that. What reward was he looking for that would cause him to look away from all those things? Just a few verses later in Hebrews 11, it says this. But as it is, they, speaking of all these saints of the Old Testament, including Moses, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is what Moses was looking to. And this is what we are to be looking to. We too, brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, we too are strangers and exiles. We too should not be comfortable with this world and the things in it. We too should not settle in and desire to be catered to. This world is not our home. The grief and the various trials and the hardships that come uniquely because we name the name of Christ, they're hard and they're difficult. But those hardships and those trials and those various difficulties are given to us as saints and it causes us to be scattered and exiled, to come out of our comfort zones so that we can abandon the promises of the world for the promises of Christ. We have a king. And our King is the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve no other. We have no other desire. We have no other pleasure. However, let me encourage you, as we talked about some many times, actually in the book of Ecclesiastes, the griefs and the trials and the sorrows in our lives, though they may seem hard, and, and, and everything in this world is going to say, those trials and those difficulties and those sorrows, everything you need to do is do everything you can to get away from those. Get as far away from those as possible. You do not deserve to suffer in that way. If it means being faithful, don't do it. Be a little less faithful, but get away from those sorrows and those trials because that's ultimate. That's the world's way of speaking. But in the scriptures, we find that the griefs and the trials and the sorrows that many of us live through in our day, it's doing something for us. It's unfettering our hearts from this world and giving us a greater joy and hope 
for the better country that is the heavenly one that's promised in the book of Hebrews. I've used this quote many times. It's one of my favorites. Calvin says in his Institutes, By our tribulations, God weans us from excessive love of this present life. And then he goes on and he says this, For this we must believe, listen, For this we must believe, that the mind is never seriously aroused to desire and ponder the life to come unless it previously is filled with contempt for this present life. Did you shake your fist this week when you heard it was cancer? I did. It made me mad. This is not our home. Life being snatched from someone that we love, it's not supposed to happen. And yet, we're here, and we're going to trust the Lord. And when you kneel beside that bed, and you talk to, I talked to Alan, I said, brother, right now, right now is when we need to have faith. Right now is when we're going to look to Jesus. We talk about faith, and we think we have it, but right now is when it's proved whether we're going to really trust Christ or not. Unfettering his heart from the things of the world. And fettering his heart, grasping onto Jesus Christ and saying, you are my king and my joy. That's what we're going to be doing together. And all of us will be more faithful because of it. So, we notice the place. The place there in verse 1. Let's turn to verse 2 and notice... That as we turn from the place, which speaks of them as being exiles, I want you to notice that the rest of this verse, verse 2, has actually turned and it's no longer explaining to us what it means to be exiles, but what it means to be the elect. Because here in our passage, we see that what's being said is that they are elect exiles. Verse 1 described what it meant meant for them to be exiles. Verse 2 is going to describe to us what it means for them to be the elect And we see here first the cause, the cause of this election. They are elect exiles. They are, in other words, chosen, called out, specially beloved by God is what it means to be elect. So their very difficult place that they're in doesn't mean that they're being cast off or abandoned or punished. No, the trials and difficulties and suffering that the church is going through, the saints are going through in First Peter, and that we go through as God's people, is due to the fact that we are chosen by God and that God is ordering our lives. We have been chosen by Him. We've been elected by Him. We've been beloved and brought near by Him. And how is that? What's the cause for that election? It is, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is the cause. The point we need to see here is important. Their calling and therefore all their trials and sufferings was not due to God simply knowing or acknowledging that they would be going through this because he looked through the corridors of time and acknowledged that. No, it was because of his foreknowledge. This understanding of foreknowledge isn't simply an understanding that God has, he's aware of what's going to happen ahead of time or in advance. No, instead this understanding of foreknowledge means this. It means he set his sovereign affection upon them. The reason we're going through what we go through isn't because God doesn't love us, because he does love us. 
And his affection has been set upon us. He's chosen us. He knows us. And he's bringing us through to prove that we are indeed his. The term then, foreknowledge, comes more from a deeply relational understanding than from a merely chronological understanding. Does that make sense? Foreknowledge isn't just that he, he, he looked down through the quarters of time. No, it means he, he loved them. He chose them. He called them out. He's saying, you are mine. This is why you're going through what you're going through because you're no longer a part of this world. You're no longer able to be happy with the things of this world. His sovereign affection chose them with his almighty power because he is, as it says here, his foreknowledge isn't just a, a mere foreknowledge or a love, but notice what it says. It even brings in this understanding according to the foreknowledge of what? Of God the Father. God the Father. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He loves us. He's bringing us along. He's, he's, he's letting us see. Okay, we know how we've, we've all been aware of bad fathers, but a good father will see the son or the daughter going through a difficult time. And sometimes they intervene and say, this is dangerous, you're going to get hurt. But there's many times that the father will see what's going on, and this is going to be a hard experience, but the father lets the son or daughter go through it because it's good for them. They'll learn from it. God is our father who's watching over us, loves us, as we go through these difficult times, he's saying, trust me, lean on me. So the cause of this election is the Father's foreknowledge. The source of this election, notice, the source of this election is the Spirit's working to bring about sanctification in our lives. Verse 2 says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Do you see it there? Now, the question is, is the sanctification the idea of progress growing more and more in holiness. That, that's, that's, a, that's the way it's used many times in Scripture. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what does that mean? That you abstain from sexual immorality, and each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is the understanding of progressing in sanctification, progressing in holiness more and more. Some say, is this what this word sanctification means here in 1 Peter 2? But sanctification also can be used as what takes place when we become saved, at conversion. Although I don't think the understanding of progressive growing in holiness can be absent from this understanding of sanctification, we can see here that it, it very well is speaking of conversion, this time when someone has placed their faith in Christ, and in so doing, the Spirit of God regenerated them and brought them to the place of sanctification. Our catechism says in Baptist Catechism 33, question 33, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer, the Spirit applies to us redemption purchased by Christ. How? By working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. There's that point in time. He unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. This is why throughout Scripture we see, specifically in the New Testament, the, those who have been saved, those who have been converted, those who are in the church are called saints. That is, holy ones. They've been sanctified, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they're growing in holiness. So Peter is warning the elect exiles of his day and all of us today who are enduring hardships because of our faith to realize that the source of one's election, 
is not for our harm or even to overcome us or even to crush us, but instead to sanctify us. The source, that which is, that which is bringing us along. Do you ever feel like I don't have the strength to do this? I can't continue with this person in my house. I can't continue to live alone. I can't continue with this boss. I can't continue with the lack of resources that I have. We can't continue in this way. The source, the source, brothers and sisters, when we're in this hardship, the source is the Spirit of God Himself, and He's bringing us more and more into His holiness. It's not for our harm. It's not just to keep us stirred up. It's not just to keep everything bad. But He's bringing us along to more and more sanctification, and He's doing this by the power of His Spirit. The Spirit is working in your life. I know you don't feel it. It doesn't seem that way. But the Spirit is working. He has not abandoned you. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down over and over, but never destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. This is what the Lord has called us to. This is the source that he's given to us as we make this pilgrimage called the Christian life. Finally, lastly, I want you to notice the result. What's the, what's the outcome of this election that's being brought forward? Describes this outcome. The result of the outcome. Many, in many ways, we simply are mentioning these, if you will, um, and... As we get into the book, we're going to be going back and looking at these points more clearly and teasing them out and more carefully considering them. Peter's just mentioning them in bullet points here. So know that we're going to get to some of these even more as we move along. But here we see that those who are elect exiles are so because of the Father's foreknowledge and loving choice of them. And the Spirit of God is working holiness and sanctification within us. And so He, the Spirit, is our source of these things, of this election. But finally, look with me in verse 2. It says, here's the outcome. For These are two twofold outcome. For the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And this is just very straightforward. The obedience of Jesus Christ, the, the obedience to Jesus Christ means that we are elect exiles so that we may be obedient to our Savior. We're not called just to go to be, to be elect exiles and then we can go and live any way we want to. You're, you, you know what? You, here, here are one or two things that you need to tweak, but everything else is up to you. Do whatever you want to. No, we're, we're called as exiles to be in this world. We're elect. We're his for the purpose of being obedient to Jesus Christ. That is our calling. We get fuzzy on this. We think we can live our lives the way we want to and then kind of add Jesus when we need to. Jump in on Sunday and make that the day. But everything else is about my love for all kinds of other things. We are called to live pure lives. We're called to live lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ. We're called to live lives loving one another. Look with me, if you will. You're there at chapter 1, right? Right at the first couple of verses. Go near the end of chapter 1 and look with me at verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Look how specific we're going to get when we get later on in this chapter. How specific we're going to get with this obedience and what it means to follow after Christ. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience. You see that? By your obedience to the truth. Now, let's, let's 
what does it mean to be obedient to the truth, purifying our souls? It says, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So at very basis, it means this, that when we're obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are loving each other well. Is that what you understand it means to love Jesus? There's a lot of people, I think, that are in the world today, and a lot of people that you interact with, maybe family members, loved ones, or coworkers, they say they love Jesus, but they haven't showed up at church forever. To love Jesus is to love those people that Jesus loves. And for us to love Jesus, it means we need to love each other faithfully and carefully. Oh, that our Lord will stir in our hearts this joyful obedience to our Savior. That our Lord will help us as we work through 1 Peter to know what it means to follow after Him and to give ourselves to one another and love each other well. But here's the second outcome of this election. It's not only obedience to Jesus, but it also, it says here, for the sprinkling with His blood. Do you see that? For the sprinkling with His blood. Now, we heard this this morning, even as David read it for us in Exodus chapter 24. This is a covenant-confirming act. It's to illustrate, as the Old Testament does, that this blood is confirming that this covenant will indeed come to fruition. Did you actually think you were here this morning or that you're a member of this congregation because ultimately and finally you chose to be? Or could it be that God in His wisdom and in His great power and goodness, He brought you here and He has you involved and connected to this congregation and in covenant with this congregation so that we can love each other faithfully because God is wise and good and there's no way, there's no way that you're going to fall away. Why? Because it isn't that, that you have hold of the Lord or have hold of Christ, but it's Christ has hold of you. Now, as I see this and I look at this, I think of, I think of Peter again in that dark alley with that little servant girl taunting him. Why was he not Judas? Do you remember the end, of, the end of all the Gospels? Have you ever asked that question? How is it that Peter made it out faithful and Judas made it out hanging from a tree? How did that work? Because Jesus had Peter. And Peter went out in the alley and wept because he displeased his Savior that he loved. And it was because the blood of Jesus purchased Peter. This is a forever eternal, absolute, never wavering, never will abandon security that we can have when hardships and troubles comes into our life. Can you continue to be faithful? Yes. And I can say that on the, on the basis of the blood of Jesus. Because He, by His Spirit, is giving us strength to be faithful. And this is why we come to the Lord's table. It isn't just because we like each other. It isn't just because we just think this is a great thing to do. No, we come to the Lord's table reaffirming that it is the body and the blood of Christ that sustains us. This is why this morning when we come to the Lord's table, we will read Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. Right before we take the cup and drink it, I'll read this from Matthew 26. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll drink it in affirmation of that covenant. Now, I hope you've already seen it. Did you see it in this passage? 
Did you see that our perseverance in the faith is directly connected to the triune God? Do you see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son at work in these verses? Brothers and sisters, when you will be abandoned is when the Trinity will no longer exist as a Trinity. That's pretty sure that you are secure. And we see this as the Baptist forefathers in our, in our, in our history as Baptists, they, they, they were trying to help us, help the, the Christians throughout the centuries understand how is it that we're going to endure because they were oppressed and brought down in so many ways. How is it that Christians are going to endure throughout this world today where it's so hard to follow after Christ? They're going to trust in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our confession, on the chapter of the perseverance of saints, paragraph 2, listen to Father, Son, and Spirit language. Listen, the perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. Praise Jesus. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. That's what we've been talking about. Flowing from, the, now what is, what is this election from? Flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. There's the Father. Upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, there's the Son. The oath of God and the abiding of His Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit. And the seed of God within them. And the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises also the certainty. The certainty that you will persevere. And the infallibility thereof. Why, why is it so certain and infallible that you will not fall off the cliff in your faith? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has grip of you. And His blood is guaranteed that you will not, you will not fall away. Finally, let's look at this prayer. Let's look at this prayer together very quickly. Uh, it's a glorious summary, wouldn't you say, here at the very end of verse 2? What more, what more soul-satisfying blessing could Peter ask in his prayer for this battered, weary bunch of saints that he's talking to that are scattered all over the place and don't have a home and are trying to live for Jesus, trying to be faithful, and everything's been taken away from them? What more precious a blessing could we pray for each other as we lean into each other's lives and as we love each other? I can't give back what this world has taken from so many of you. But I can promise you that the peace of Christ can abide in your heart. And so as we are in this pilgrimage together, let's remember this prayer, this short prayer that's before us. And this is the prayer I want us to notice as we come to a close. First, this idea of grace, this unmerited favor of our, of our Savior and our Lord, this amazing love and goodness that He shows to us. This is part of the prayer. May grace. And then, we see peace here, which is the condition of all of God's people who are resting in this favor of the triune God, the almighty God. Peace that passes, as Paul says, all understanding. Peace, then, that is not simply the absence of conflict and struggle and turmoil in our life. That's not what peace is. It's not the absence of conflict and struggle and turmoil in our life. Peace here, biblical peace, peace is presence with God, not absence of conflict. It means being in the midst of what God is doing in our lives and resting in that even though it may be hard. 
The God-wrought peace is what we are so desperately in need of in our tumultuous world filled with chaos and peril. And when I sit across from you in your living room table, or when I'm there sitting on your couch and you said, Shane, I don't think I can do this anymore. I pray for God's peace to be upon you. Because I can't take the problem away. And we can't run. We've got to be faithful. I pray for God's grace and peace to be upon you. Not just in small measure, but notice what it says. Be multiplied to you. Be abundant in your life. Be in full measure in your midst. So this morning I pray. Dear church, blessed saints, may the grace and peace be multiplied to you.